Thank you, Hannah and the worship team and our tech team and everyone that helps prepare our building, our place, puts all thought and prayer and planning into our services that we ask, not that we're trying to tell God what we want him to bless, but as we think and listen to God, what is it that he wants us to do today as we're gathered together uh, as his people? You probably heard of the phrase, it left them scratching their head. Hmm. I won't ask you all to do it, but maybe subliminally while I talk about this, all of a sudden you're going to start doing this. Hmm. It left them scratching their head. Figuratively, it means that someone is a bit perplexed or puzzled, confused, having a difficult time trying to understand something about the what and why of a situation. Now, we've seen this numerous times. Uh, this coming week, I think already the rookies and quarterbacks have been reporting to training camp. Next week for the NFL, the, the veterans all uh, arrive. And before you know it, we're back into football season. And if you've been a Chicago Bear fan, you may have others and you may find yourself in the same thing. There have been more than too many times, really, I guess I'd put it, where the calls that maybe the coaches have done kind of left ourselves like, why in the world would they do that? Especially when, it, it, like everybody else knows, this should, kind of play should happen. The coach calls something like this. The play gets stopped, you know, for no gain or is there an interception or anything else. It's like, why in the world would they do that? Why are they getting paid that money to do, make decisions like that? Well, we also hear about sometimes uh, politicians or maybe your boss at work and he or she, they, they say something, they in, in, implement a new plan or procedure or something and you're like, what in the world? You find yourself puzzled and bewildered about that. And we even see that in our relationships with family members and friends and, and coworkers. You know, but if we're honest, there's also been some things in the Bible as at least at first glance when we come across them that kind of causes us to kind of figuratively scratch our head we're wondering what exactly is that in there for why was that said that, that should be something they do what's the purpose of this when it maybe seems like there should be something else maybe that God would do instead you think about how the Israelites God told them way back in the Old Testament uh, in the first few books was he's giving them various laws as he was leading them to the promised land. Uh, don't plant two crops in the same field. Don't use two kinds of, of fabric in the same garment. Or about a little story tucked into the book of uh, the historical books in the Old Testament where the prophet Elijah, and he was a man God used greatly in a number of ways, all of a sudden it says one day there was a group of boys that started making fun of him calling him baldy and making other kind of, you know, things against him. And it says that Elisha called down a curse on these juveniles and all of a sudden out of the woods two bears come out and maul 42 of those youngins. Huh? What, what, uh, what, what benefit, Lord, do we get out of that? Why was, why was that put there? What do you mean by that? Well, we're going to look at to a, a biblical subject this morning that might, we might find ourselves in that same vein that we might say, well, yeah, maybe I've heard of that, but I, I really couldn't tell you a whole lot about it, or I can't really explain why that's there. Uh, we might find ourselves a bit confused or even scratching our heads, so to speak. And that, that's, that subject, as was read in the scripture, uh, is the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And if you know a little bit about the life of Christ as he came into this world, born as a baby, lived as he came about 30 years of age, began his public ministry. The Bible says he lived a perfect life. He taught as one with authority. He, he uh, performed miracles. He died on a cross, was buried, rose again. For 40 days he was still on the earth and then he ascended back to heaven. So we're going to look at that specific subject this morning about this, the ascension of Christ. Seminary professor Patrick Schreiner in his excellent book on the ascension uh, says that the, it, it can appear, the ascension, as a bad plan. Jesus remaining on earth seems intuitively like a better idea. Have you ever thought of that before? Here's Jesus. He dies on the cross, and we're looking at it from you know, thousands of years later after he did this, and, and he's buried, he rises again, he's the head of the church, and yet after 40 days, he goes back to heaven. I mean, what would, what would evangelism look like if Jesus was here? If we could, you know, Jesus, could you come to our town? Could you show people your hands and your side where the, the nail prints are at? Could you talk about what it was like and why you're here that you came to be the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world? Or if, as one writer said, what if Jesus went on tour and, and did miracles and taught and, and, and so much more? What would be different from our human standpoint? It almost seems like, God, what was the purpose of Jesus leaving and going away when, boy, it seemed like things were just ripe, just perfect for him to continue a ministry that could even be greater than what he had before the cross? I think even first, Jesus' first disciples were not expecting his ascension. They had been with him those three years. They had listened to his teaching, his claims about being the promised Messiah of, of Old Testament. They grew in their belief that, yes, he truly was this person that God had sent. There were so many amazing things that took place. On Palm Sunday, when Jesus was going into Jerusalem, and the crowds that were there worshiping, in some of their mind, I thought they'd probably think, this is this is." fabulous this is exactly people are recognizing Jesus as king and all of a sudden it was like whiplash less than a week later Jesus is dead on a cross and he's taken down his body put into a tomb the stone seals the entrance and even a guard is put on there talk about going from emotional highs to emotional lows it was like the rug of hope was just pulled out from underneath them and they were just distraught. They didn't know what to think. I'm sure in some ways they were scratching their head. God, wait a second, did we miss something? I thought this was the Messiah. And now he's gone. And yet, all of a sudden, there was murmurings, rumors. Some women said they saw Jesus. This other disciple said they saw him. Two walking on the road to Emmaus said, this guy came across and he was teaching us. And later when we sat down to have supper, we recognized it was Jesus. And then he left. And soon all of them got to see the risen Christ. They interacted with him for 40 days while he was still on the earth. And in Acts chapter 1, they asked, Are you now, Jesus, going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus says one more thing to them. And then he was taken up and gone from their sight. What was God's purpose with the ascension? Why, why was it so necessary for Jesus to leave. And that's what I want to uh, hope we can find an answer to this morning. Why did Jesus leave? Why didn't he just stay and lead his church from here uh, on the earth? 
And our, our, our goal today as we look at the scriptures is to ask that the Lord, would you please enable us to see the divine reasons for the ascension of Christ? And I think which once we see that, it's going to give us some great encouragement and it will renew the power and purpose we have to live out the Christian life. That even though Jesus is no longer visible to us, we are far better off now that he did leave. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father, thank you for this opportunity to open up your word. Lord, we thank you that you've given us the scriptures, your word, in our language so that we could read it and listen to it, study it. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who guides us into all truth. Lord, may he work in all of our hearts today as we speak and as we listen and do it for your honor and glory now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I agree with Robert Peterson when he comments on the ascension. He says, the ascension is the linchpin, and that means something vital or indispensable, of Christ's saving work, bridging his earthly and his heavenly ministries. And many times as people trying to help us understand the Bible, they, they, they talk about two different states of Christ. When Christ first came into the world, born as a baby, they talk about his state of humiliation. The idea that he's left the glory of heaven and now he's taken on human flesh and he's with us. So it's his birth, his life, his death, and his burial. That's the state of humiliation. And what Peterson says is the, the ascension now, and really it's, it's tied in with the resurrection, is the linchpin, that the, 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 the vital part that shows this was one part of the work of Christ and now there's something new. Now there's going to be his state of exaltation where he has risen from the dead, when he's gone back to be in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he has ministry now going on and one day he comes back to take us to be with him, those of us who belong to him. As you'll see on your outline, we have, uh, there's going to be two aspects we're going to look at this morning as it relates to this topic of the ascension. The necessity of Christ's ascension, and then second, the significance of that ascension, both for Jesus and for us as believers. All right, so first of all, the necessity of, this is of Christ's ascension. Now sometimes, again, as we mentioned, maybe this is something that you're a little bewildered or perplexed or it's like, yeah, I've heard about that. I know Jesus went back up, but I really couldn't tell you a whole lot about it or, or why that Jesus, uh, why God had Jesus go back to heaven at this time. Sometimes the doctrine is just kind of overlooked, right? We talk about the death and the resurrection of Jesus and then we're already talking about he's in heaven and then there's the second coming and we kind of forget a little bit of, of what all has taken place. Or we think that the Bible really doesn't say much about the ascension. We read one passage uh, this morning, Luke 24, that narrates the event of the ascension, and Acts 1 is the other one that talks about it. But, I, boy, I can't think of anything else much more that talks about in Scripture. Is there? Well, I'm glad you asked that, because there is so much more that Scripture says on this. The ascension was even predicted in the Old Testament Psalm 110 is one of Psalms of uh, the Psalms of King David. And verse 1 says this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, you know, you're looking at there, there, but what helps us understand that this is referring to Christ and his ascension and going back to heaven and being on the throne, 
we see it by how even Jesus used it. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 22 for a moment. Matthew 22. And Jesus, as he's talking to a crowd of people and he's being asked questions, he responds to them and includes this part of Psalm 110. So Matthew 22, starting at verse 41. It says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. And he said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now, for us to see even more clearly that this passage in Psalm was a prediction, if you will, of Christ's ascension, Peter, again, under the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit, in his sermon on Pentecost, uses this same verse. And he uses it to bolster his claims that God has made this Jesus whom they crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And he now is seated at the right hand of God. So we mentioned that there's actually two passages that narrate the event, and let's read the passage there in Luke 24. Let's turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 1, and we'll read the other passage that narrates the event uh, itself. Uh, Luke, the physician, wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. In the Gospel of Luke, we read actually in the beginning of both books, Luke talks about how he came about under the Spirit working him and he investigated all these different things about what happened with Jesus and then to write them down clearly for us. And he ends his Gospel with the ascension of Christ and he begins the second volume, the book of Acts, also with the ascension of Christ. Let's pick it up in Acts chapter 1, starting at verse uh, 6. Then they gathered around him, so they, the, some of the disciples there, they gather around him, Jesus. Okay, so this is now about 40 days after his resurrection. And they ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? I mean, they're thinking, just like we talked about before, well, I mean, after that emotional, first we had an emotional high uh, as he came into Jerusalem, then there's the emotional low as he's dead and, and buried, then the high again as he's alive, and now what, what kind of ministry, amazing things could Jesus do and they could be a part of going forward, the resurrected Christ? And they said, okay, Lord, that must mean then, right? You're going to uh, restore the kingdom to Israel. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. You know, it's interesting there as, as this is unfolded and, then, and the disciples see 
Jesus just start rising as he's talking with them. And Luke's, in the, Luke's gospel says part of that talking, he was blessing them. And then he's gone and a cloud just hides him. They can't see him. All of a sudden there and then there's two angels. And they're talking, explaining some of this, that they will see him again one day. Christ will go back just as he went up visibly, bodily, and, and he's going to come back the very same way. And we see that mentioned in Revelation and, and some other places there. It's interesting as a side note that a number of times when significant events happened in the life of Jesus, angels were there. You remember some of those? Some of our, our, I know some of these young people, they've been in stuff there. Do you remember ever seeing angels in the Bible? Was angels ever with Jesus? What about at his birth? An angel went to Mary and said, Mary, you're going you're gonna to have a son. An angel went to Joseph and said, Mary, who's, who's your betrothed to, is going to have a son conceived by the Holy Spirit. There were angels, a whole host of them around, that came to the shepherds when Jesus was born to announce his coming. When Jesus was being tempted by Satan, it says after those three temptations on that occasion when that's written in the Bible, it says that an angels came to him and ministered to him because Jesus was the God. He was God, but he was also man. So in his humanity, that wore him out and angels came to minister to him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, if you know of the story, Jesus knows that the time has come and he's going to be soon going to be, to be killed on the cross. And they're praying in this garden and uh, the leaven were there because Judas has already gone to, to uh, betray him. And then he takes Peter, James, and John. They go further into the garden and he asks them to watch and pray with him. And then we see such an intense moments as Jesus is praying where the, the scriptures tell us even drops of blood are just coming out of him. It's so emotionally uh, just wrenching for him at that time. And in one of the gospel accounts, it says that as he's asking his father at different times, if there's any way possible, this could be removed from me, but not my will, but yours we've done. It says again that an angel came and ministered to him at that moment. And then, of course, at the resurrection, when the, tomb, the, ro- the, the stone was rolled away, the angels were there. And as we read about with the ascension, angels again God uses uh, in the life of Christ here. Probably the Gospel of John makes the most references uh, to the ascension. Jesus said, if you love me, you will be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I am. He also said Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. And so we see there's quite a bit of evidence in Scripture, especially the New Testament. A number of things that even Jesus said that he was going to be, he said, just as I was with the Father and I came down, there's going to be a time soon where I'm going to be going back to be with my Heavenly Father. So even though it may at first seem like an unfamiliar doctrine, yet it is significant in Scripture. It's predicted in the Old Testament and numerous passages in the New Testament talk about it. So what exactly is the ascension? Well, we know Jesus left this earth. They watched him. He went to a place, the Bible says. He went to his father's house. Jesus said in John 14, In my father's house are many rooms. If it were that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? He's made clear that he's going back to his father's house. And then he's also going to be seated at the father's right hand. Again, back to what Peter uh, preached on in Acts 2. He says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. He is exalted 
to the right hand of God. Or in Hebrews 1, uh, and those first few verses just talking about the deity of Christ, how he, even though he came, had human flesh, he's God the Son. He's, he's in every way just like God the Father in that sense of essence. But it says after Jesus provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so God, um, part of God's plan was that for Jesus when he was done, after those 40 days was to go back into heaven. Now it's interesting that if you read in the gospel accounts after Jesus rode, there was a number of times where he is appearing and then disappearing and then reappearing to the disciples. He did it all of a sudden he's there at, at the tomb on the first day and then he seems to be gone. He's, all of a sudden he's there with, with the disciples on the road to Emmaus and then once they recognize it's him, he's gone. Another time the disciples are all together in a room that's locked and they're there and all of a sudden, boom, Jesus is right there in their midst. And so for some reason he's coming and going at different times. And I think to finally let them know that he's not going to be doing that anymore, that coming and going at any time, anywhere, they get to see him now going up into heaven and then of course the announcement by the angels that now he is gone and Jesus instructed them to wait because they're going to receive power from on high, but he will come again one day in the future. The last point, just to mention about the, the details of the doctrine, is that Jesus ascended as the incarnate Son. Jesus, as we believe, the Bible says, Jesus is part of the Godhead, the Trinity. There's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one person and, and um, one God and three persons. God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are eternal, never had a beginning. They're, they're holy and righteous, immutable, all-powerful, all-knowing, all those different attributes that Scripture talks about. They were all involved with creation. They were involved in different ways with our salvation. They're involved in all the things that go on in this life. But at a point in time, the Father sent the Son to this earth clothed in humanity. Jesus, in order to be our Savior, had to be made like us. He was still God, yet he had on human flesh. At a point in time, Jesus, the God-man, died on the cross. Jesus was buried. On the third day, at a point in time, Jesus rose from the dead. And then 40 days later, Jesus, the God-man, ascended back to heaven. And so today, seated at the right hand of God is a man, is Jesus the God-man. And it seems as we look at Scripture that even though Jesus, before he took on human flesh, he was spirit, as the Bible says, God is spirit. At that point in time, he took on human flesh. After his resurrection, he has a resurrected body. And it seems, as we see even later in Re Revelation, when he comes back again, Jesus still has that body. That's just so interesting, and that can be weeks of sermons and lectures on itself about the humanity and the deity of Jesus and Jesus then perpetually has by God's design a body even though he is still God so I hope maybe at this point we are just a little bit less perplexed a little bit less puzzled have a little bit more understanding about what the ascension was that it was part of of God's plan that after his resurrection 40 days later Jesus went back to heaven seated at the right hand of God. So that's been kind of the, the what, and so now it's time to look at the why, to look at the significance of Christ's ascension. 
So we're going to look at both the significance of it for Jesus himself, and then we're going to look at it, the significance for us, for those who belong to him. For Jesus, the ascension just proves, it's another verification that Jesus is who he claims to be, that he is God the Son come in human flesh to become the Savior of the world. With all that, with his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, uh, the goal of the incarnation has been fulfilled and completed. The glory of Christ's work on the cross was confirmed and revealed. And now as he's ascended on the right hand of God, he has a position of glory, honor, and authority. Now you may think for a second, oh wait, didn't, Pastor Tim, did you just talk about how, how Jesus though is, is God the Son? He's, he's, he's been around for all eternity? I mean, wasn't he when he was with the Father and the Spirit in heaven? Didn't he have a place of authority and glory and honor? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. But there seems to be something as you look at Scripture, when Jesus took on human flesh, even though he's still God, he could be worshipped as God and everything else, somehow there was something different. We can't, it's hard to put into words, so I need to be careful how I try to describe that. But there seems to be something that has changed somehow in that. Because in John chapter 17, verse 5, Jesus, as he's praying to his Father, says, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world that I had with you before the world began. He knows that just in a matter of hours, he's going to be dying on the cross. He knows, though, that he'll be raised from the dead and he'll be seated again at, at God's right hand. And so he says, Lord, that glory I had with you before in your presence, somehow the scripture doesn't quite explain it. Somehow that's been changed in some way. Lord, as I come back to heaven, please, again, give me that glory that I had with you. That's Jesus, the God-man, uh, praying for that. But it does, as he's seated there in glory at the Father's right hand, it demonstrates his rule over the universe, that he's the long-expected heir of King David. In Luke chapter 1, when, when Gabriel was talking to Mary about she was going to be having this child, this child was going to be special, it was going to be God the Son, he says, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. We see the kingship there of Jesus, his authority, his power. In 1 Peter chapter 3, it says, who, talking about Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. And Ephesians 1 says the same thing toward the end of the chapter in one of Paul's great prayers. He said, God raised him up, and he has seated Christ in the heavenlies, and he has placed him over everything. Over everything. Every kind of power and authority over every dominion. He's given him a name above every name, both in this age and the age to come. And he's done it all for Christ and for the benefit of Christ being the head of the church. And the significance then of the ascension, how it verifies again that Jesus is God the Son coming to be our Savior. And yes, he deserves and has the glory, honor, and authority uh, that belongs to him. But what about for us? What, what is the significance for us if we belong to Christ, if we have trusted in Jesus in his work on the cross, that we're resting in that alone as our salvation, we belong to him, we have a relationship with him, what is the benefit for us? Two things I want us to focus on for a minute before we wrap all this up. I think the ascension of Christ foreshadows our future ascension and home with Christ in heaven. Isn't that something? Just like the, uh, Paul speaks about in Corinthians, just as Christ raised from the dead, we who belong to Christ is like the first fruits because Christ rose 
And if we belong to Christ, we're in him, we're united with him, then we too one day will rise again. So even though we experience physical death, and that can be scary, that can be unpleasant, that can be certainly it's not something we're looking forward to in a sense of that physical aspect of it, but we will rise again as well because that's God's promise to us. And so the ascension, as Christ went back up to heaven, that foreshadows our ascension of God taking us to be with him. Paul says that very thing in 1 Thessalonians 4, the dead in Christ will rise first, and after we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Or Jesus in John 14 said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you can be where I am. There's some of the significance. Because Christ rose and he went back to heaven. He seated at the right hand of the Father. We who, are, who belong to him, we also will rise. We will ascend. We will be with him in the Father's house. That's an incredible thing that God has promised for us who belong to him. But we've also received the promised Holy Spirit. Listen to what Jesus said further in John's Gospel. He says, but very truly I tell you, it's for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Jesus says very clearly, if I don't go away, then the Spirit doesn't come. Now that, I have to be honest, that you know, causes me to scratch my head a little bit. Um, Jesus, I mean, is it God? Is it, it can't, two of you can't be on the earth at the same time? Is that, uh, is that why you can't do that? You know, if Jesus is here, then the Spirit can't be here or, or what? And that's not it at all. That's just part of God's plan. He's not given us all the reasons for that, but somehow as God laid all this out, our plan of salvation, Jesus was going to be here for a certain amount of time, die on the cross, rise again, go back to heaven, and with his ascension then, that was going to be when the Father and the Son would send the Holy Spirit into this world. So that's why Jesus says, it's good that I go away. Because once I go away, the advocate, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Uh, a lot of you are members of our church. You've known about our statement of faith, uh, what we believe about the Bible. The uh, part there about the Holy Spirit says this. If when we trust in Christ as our Savior, the Holy Spirit baptizes believers into union with Christ and we're then adopted as heirs in the family of God. The Spirit also indwells, illuminates, guides, equips, and empowers believers for Christ-like living and service. So that's why it's a significant thing for us because as believers now, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. God himself, he indwells, he illuminates, he equips, he helps us in everything we need in this life. He uses the word of God and so many other things. And it's interesting that even Jesus said, because I'm going away and because the spirit is coming, you're gonna be able to do greater things than the things I did. Now there's a puzzlement. Wait, Jesus, you're God, right? You've been around forever, you've never been created, you're eternal. You're all-powerful, all-knowing, uh, all-good, all-moral, all-holy, all these different things, all-wise. And you're saying that as you go back and you send the Holy Spirit that we as your church 
can do greater things than what you did? That's a little bit of a puzzlement. Now, again, we've talked about several things today, about things that may cause us to scratch our heads a little bit. I would encourage you, hold those questions. When Pastor Jay comes back, he's going to be the guy you want to go to and answer all these questions, all right? He's going to be the guy. I had one question this morning, and I think I was able to kind of answer that. So please keep those real, real head scratchers for when Pastor Jay comes back. But why? How is that possible? I mean, that, that can be a whole thing in itself, but I think at least one reason would be this. Why, at least in one way, it's better that Christ leaves, that we are able to do, because he's left and sent his spirit, why we can do greater things, I think part of this might be an answer. Then, back in the day when Christ was here, he was God the Son in human flesh. He was visible in one place at one time. Yes, he walked around the countryside, he was in Galilee, he was in Jerusalem, he was over you know, by Bethany and this and that. Uh, but visibly, he was in one place. He worked with you know, a small group of people. He preached, yes, to hundreds and thousands and numerous ones responded to him. Okay. But now, with Christ gone, with him sending the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that when we believe, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And so now, why it's better that he's gone, why we're able to do more, and it's God doing it, it's not us, it's God doing it through us, because now the God, the Holy Spirit, is in each one of us who are born again. So he's in us 24-7, leading, guiding, illuminating, helping, equipping, producing this fruit of the Spirit, giving us spiritual gifts, uh, convicting us of sin. I mean, the list goes on of the things. And so now as the church expands in the book of Acts and expands to today, now we have millions of believers and each one that are truly born again have the Holy Spirit. So God, the Holy Spirit, is working in each one of them. That's why I think at least part of the answer, why it's better for Jesus to go and send the Spirit because now we each have God himself living in us and living out his life through us. And that's an incredible thing for us who belong to Christ, part of the significance of his ascension. So let's, let's wrap this up. Let's talk a little bit, okay? So what, what can we take from this? And as Pastor Jay loves to say, what, how can we land the plane here and what, what should we do? So let me just, uh, for two, two groups of people who are here today. For some of you here today, this message may have given you some more knowledge about the ascension of Christ, but that's the limit of its significance for you. For some of you here today, hopefully, uh, you know, I was faithful to the text, was able to try to explain it clearly, help us understand at least a little bit more what the ascension was and why this was part of God's plan. But for some here, that's the limit of its significance today. What's the answer? Well, to put it concisely and bluntly, you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And whether you realize it or not, you are spiritually lost and condemned. Now, I know some of you might be saying, Pastor Tim, how in the world do you say that? For the Bible tells me so. And please know that for all of us here today, for everyone in the whole world, we were all in that same position. 
Okay? The Bible makes it very clear that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's moral perfection. And we all deserve punishment. We're under, we're under a curse. We're under judgment. We're condemned. And unless somehow that is changed, we will find ourselves in hell in the lake of fire. Now, that's just being brutally honest, but God is letting us know that, hey, there's, there's an issue here. You know, was there ever a time in your life when maybe you hurt or offended somebody but you didn't know about it until they let you know or maybe someone else on their behalf let you know? This probably happened before, right? You're just, I mean, there's, let's face it, there's times, there's times very much I know, boy, I, I shouldn't have said that. That was not good, you know, or even if I don't quite catch it then, thankfully the Holy Spirit where I'm like, hey, you know, Tim, that was not the right thing to do. You need to go back and apologize. You need to go make that right or whatever the situation warrants. But there's been times, I'm, true, I'm sure it's true for you, that we're ignorant of somehow someone perceived that we did something, said something, or didn't say something, or didn't do something, and it offended them, and it hurt them. And we're just ignorantly, uh, you know, we're just ignorant, blissfully ignorant about it until somehow we find it about it. And in a way, people f- find that the same case. They're shocked almost when they find out that they have offended the God of this universe. And you think, well, what? that's supposed to be good. What if you were uh, driving, going along a road, and around a bend there was something that if you kept going the way you were, you were going to get a big accident, get hurt so badly, or maybe even get killed. Would you want someone before that curve to kind of let you know either by a sign or somehow let you know, hey, stop. Don't keep going that way. Danger, okay? And that's what God is doing. He's saying, hey, Tim, the rest of you here, the rest of you around this world, there's danger here. This is where you stand before me. You may not even realize it. You may not even choose to believe it, but this is the God of this universe who has made every one of us saying, this is true of each one of us. And I know Pastor Jay often will say, that warning is a way we love others. When we warn them of danger, we do it because we care about them. God warns us about where we stand in relationship to him, that we're lost, we don't have a saving relationship, we're condemned because he loves us. Because he loves us. And even though it's really bad news that we're lost and condemned, there is even better news. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's probably a lot of different ways, and there are a lot of ways that we can show love. We can say it. We can, we can demonstrate it. I mean, we can give gifts. I mean, you name it, right? The five love languages are at least five different ways we can, you know, we can uh, demonstrate love, speak about love. God did it not only by talking about it in his word, but he sent his son. He sent God himself into this world to be our savior. That was part of God's plan. He created a plan to save us from our sin. That plan was to have Jesus come to be born as a human, live a perfect life, die on a cross, and what was not seen by anybody there, all they saw was this man who claimed to be the son of God being tortured and eventually dying on a cross. God was at work, the Bible says, and somehow, as only God can do it, he took my sin, he took your sin, and he put it on Christ. And God's holiness demands that sin has to be punished. I mean, it'd be great if God could just overlook it, 
but God can't. He'd be violating his character. And so somehow sin had to be paid for, and either we pay for it, and that means by we're going to be separated from God forever in hell, or God does something to pay it for us. And that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. That's how much he loves you and me, that he was willing to go and not only die a horrible physical death, but to die, if you will, almost, if, I could, if you don't mind me saying this, like a spiritual death. He bore the sin, the guilt of my sin, the punishment of my sin on himself. He bore your guilt and punishment of sin on him so that it could be paid for once and for all and God could turn around and offer a gift of eternal life. And this gift of salvation of God is amazing. This is a gift that's available to all. It's a gift that's exclusive and also inclusive. Those words are important. It's exclusive because the Bible says very clearly, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Acts 4.12, it tells us that there's no other name, no other person that, uh, except for Christ by which we can be saved. The Bible makes it very clear. You may not agree with it. You may not believe it. But you have to be honest as we read it. God says this salvation is exclusive. There's one way. But the good thing is it's inclusive. It's inclusive. Because in Romans it says, for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't say some who call on the name of the Lord will be saved and others who call on the name can't be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord in faith is saved, the Bible says. Another place it says that Jesus will never turn away those who come to him. Okay, so it's exclusive and yet it's also inclusive, what Jesus has done for us. We're told that in Acts 20 that we must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what exactly uh, repentance? And if you've been here before, you, you've heard of it. And let me just put maybe a little different way of trying to demonstrate or to illustrate that, Okay. The idea of repentance is that we really get, honestly get, that we have offended God and deserve the consequences of that sin. Okay, I'll give you an example. You probably at times maybe confronted someone, someone did something against you, and you talk with them and say, hey, you know what? I just need to say, you know, what you said there, that really hurt my feelings, or that, you know, you were, you were degrading me or something how does the person respond? They could respond a lot of different ways. Maybe there's been some times, unfortunately, someone responds, oh, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, I just had a bad day and, and I've just been so tired and, you know, I just wasn't really thinking and what are they doing? Making all kinds of excuses. Are they owning up to the fact that what they did was wrong? Okay. True repentance is saying, okay, God, once I hear that I've offended God, I'm not just going through the motions of saying, okay, God, yeah, I get it. I'm a sinner. Uh, you know, God, I really, boy, you don't know the home life I grew up in. You don't know about this about me. You don't know I didn't get a chance for all the education I had. You don't know about the job situation I have. I don't really have all the money I want. I mean, we can just stack excuse upon excuse and all these different things. But repentance, when the Spirit works in us, when we realize exactly what we've done, that we've violated, we've offended the God of this universe, that all I'm deserving of is judgment, his just judgment for my sin, that's repentance. And the Bible says that we, 
we, we turn to God in repentance. So as I'm doing my life and just thinking everything is fine, and I, I hear what Pastor Tim and others have said about this, it gets me at the heart, and I truly own that I've done this wrong and what I deserve, and I turn to God in repentance, and then I have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to trust that what Jesus, not only that he, who he said he was, he's the son of God, but what he did on the cross was the only opportunity, the only chance, the only hope we have of having our sins forgiven and giving new life in Christ, that a relationship that will last for all eternity, that you exclusively rely on Christ and nothing else as your only hope of salvation. It's a gift, the Bible says. We can't earn it. We can't work for it. We don't deserve it. God did all of it. And he asks us to humbly recognize the great need we have and receive by faith his gift through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the great thing is that salvation can be yours today. For some of you may not even realize that you don't have that relationship with God. You don't even realize maybe that you stand condemned before God. But my friend, I'm telling you here today, God says today can be that day of salvation for you. And I know that afterwards there's going to be some people up here, prayer, our prayer partners, and be willing to talk with you, open up God's word, and just take the time to try to answer questions. And we've been praying that God would use this message to speak to all of our hearts wherever we're at spiritually. So for some, today can be that day of salvation. For us who have been born again, it's imperative that you and I spend some more time reflecting on this doctrine of the ascension really as part of all that Christ has done for us because you can't separate Christ's perfect life his death his burial his resurrection his coming again they all are part of the same thing but we've just for time's sake have just chosen a, a slice of that to look at this morning why do we need to keep thinking about it? say we've already, well you know what pastor Tim I've heard that before you know I, I've heard about Christ's perfect life and I've heard Christ's death and I believe all that The confidence, the hope we have in life that we belong to Christ. You know what happens as we're living our lives in this world? We're struggling with sin at times. Bad things are happening. Tough things are happening. We're finding out we're losing jobs. This relationship's not working so well. Uh, why did, why did the uh, you know, refrigerator go bad? Why is this happening? I mean, the list goes on, right? And if we're honest, it wears us down. It's like it keeps chipping away. Here's, if you will, a block of our confidence and hope in God. It doesn't affect who God is, that we still don't belong to him, but our confidence, these things start chipping away at it. It starts, it starts cracking it, and we start feeling like, oh, man, do I, do I, can I really have that confidence? Can I really hope in God? And the more we take the time, I take the time to keep thinking, reflecting, praying over these things, God uses that to keep renewing and strengthening uh, the, the, the confidence and the hope that we have in our daily Christian lives. And it's amazing, a great uh, verse in Hebrews chapter 6 talks about we who belong to Christ, is talking about, have fled to take hold of the hope who is Christ set before us so that we can be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor of the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. You know, there is, the book of Hebrews speaks about a heavenly temple. A heavenly, actually, I guess it's tabernacle to be accurate. It speaks of a heavenly. Just like there was a physical tabernacle and then a temple, there is a heavenly one. And Jesus has gone back there. And if you remember a little bit about the, the temple and tabernacle here on earth, there was one place inside called the holy place. 
And in that, there was even a smaller place called the Holy of Holies. And only one day a year, only one person, the high priest, if he prepared himself rightly for God's uh, requirements, could enter there in order to sacrifice and make atonement. Now, of course, that wasn't final atonement. That was in Christ. But to do what God asked them to do. And Hebrews makes a beautiful picture that Christ now, as he's ascended, he's gone into that heavenly temple and his blood now is put on that heavenly altar to show that his salvation is complete. And as he's there, because we belong to him, we have great hope because he's already there. We're so identified with him through our faith and and being born again that since Christ is there, God sees it as, you know what? We're there too. And that gives that great hope that great encouragement for the soul. So we praise God for the truth about Christ's ascension, its significance for us as part of his great gospel, about a great salvation for us, that we, we belong to him now because of what Christ has done for us. And there's some incredible things, not only God is doing in our lives now, but one day there'll be even more things we can't even imagine that God is going to do for our good and for his glory. Please pray with me. God, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for the truth of Christ's ascension, for all your whole plan of salvation, Lord, for each one of us. We are grateful for that, Lord. We pray that you would help us, help me, help each one of us here, Lord, to take this to heart, that it transforms our thinking and our lives each and every day as your people. I pray, Father, for the work of your spirit and those that don't belong to Christ yet, Lord. I pray that you'd grant them repentance, you'd open their eyes, remove the blindness. Lord, bring them today even to saving faith, again, for their good and your glory. And just like those who we read about in Luke as they watched that actual event of the ascension so long ago, After they left, they worshiped you. Father, may we do that too as we think about these things. Worship you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we pray this all in our Savior's powerful name. Amen.